I don't know how I started in higher education, but I do know it was a learning curve, making U-turns, wrong turns, going around in circles and hitting stop signs, until I started asking questions, asking faculty, scholars, even myself looking for answers. So now they call me the... The Navigationalist. Yes, all right. Thank you. Welcome to The Navigationalist, where we have crucial conversations about navigational strategies for underrepresented faculty. I am your host, Jimmy Cheffin, and we have a special, special show today. What if I told you just because we're having a pandemic, activism and work go hand in hand, but you don't have to do all the work? Take care of yourself. Give your allies time to shine. And what if I told you that your student's always been biased, but there are some things you can definitely do about it. And what if I told you I have RBF, racial battle fatigue, all of the symptoms, but I am working on it. Today I have two special guests to help me with this conversation. Artist, scholar, professor, Dr. Wilson Okalo, and writer, scholar, professor, Dr. Stephen Quay. And oh, before I forget, let me remind our podcast uh, audience, if you would like to submit a question to our future navigationists, please visit our website, greenbookforhighered.com. All right, let's get to it. And we have Dr. Bailey at the cafe. Hello, I am Dr. Kumar. I myself understand the cost and consequences of activism by faculty of color, the extra labor. How can I balance this labor? How can I engage my minoritized students without burning out? Any strategies? So Dr. Kumar is asking a question about how to strike that right balance, right? Balancing the passion for activism. And this story, this scenario may sound familiar to many underrepresented faculty, many of our listeners out there. One chooses this career because of our commitment to be relevant and student success. We take pride in our work that makes a difference and improves the lives of our students. However, there are challenges when our commitment to social justice meets the Academy's definition of a highly productive faculty member. How do we balance labor? Dr. Wilson Okalo, please. I think you're absolutely right when you talk about the uh, well, I just want to sort of name the, the weight of the moment uh, that we're in. Um, I think we're in, at minimum, a, a triple pandemic, right? Where we're grappling with, uh, from, you know, with the public health crisis, we're, we're grappling with a, a systemic racism issue, generational, uh, in fact, and then there's um, communities that continue to be affected sort of um, in and along their uh, sort of economics. And so I'm, I want to be sensitive to just sort of what this moment sort of means for folks and how folks are, are grappling with that. And faculty members aren't immune to that, right? So, so carrying that with them into uh, the, the university context, you know, it, it becomes added, uh, sort of an added sort of thing to think about, think about the work that they're often asked to do, right? Particularly if those, those faculty members teach in the courses that call on them to sort of name some of these systemic issues, right? And so, and then we are also talking about faculty of color, right? So, as as faculty of color who are who are grappling with this, you know, themselves trying to negotiate what it means to be a racialized body uh, in this public context and in a in a space where um, there are few, as you named, 
um, oftentimes their labor, their expertise, their ideas um, are often called upon um, in in um, uh, in increased ways. Oh, yes, exactly. And and thank you for saying that because that is important to think about. We should acknowledge this coronavirus pandemic. Um, acknowledge the moment and its effects, its disruption to college and university and other institution, our lives, its disruption to every aspect of college life. It is affecting this moment. What, so uh, what should we be thinking about? You know, for me, um, in terms of strategies, um, I'm thinking about how we come to protect our time, right? Um, and value um, the ways in which we, we give that away, right? To ourselves, but also to the people um, that we love, right? And so I think um, I'm learning in this work, um, um, you know, and I've had tremendous mentors, Dr. Quay being one of them, but I'm learning that uh, nobody's going to protect your time the way that you will, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you're, um, you're so right. And I'm learning that now that I need to protect my time. I'm thinking about boundaries, not intended meetings I'm not invited to. But even that is complex, right? Because this environment wasn't created for us, nor created to protect our time, right? You know, programs and, and, and departments are not are not designed and not structurally able uh, to protect uh, the, the the time and really value, I think, uh, scholars of color in the ways that um, I think they should be sort of thought about. And so thinking about how we protect our time, I'm thinking about Healing, uh, I, this notion of sort of our network and, and creating our own sorts of healing circles, right? So even if it's not on campus, right, how can we tap into networks uh, that might include our own sort of counselor? How can we tap into networks that might include, um, you know, our, you know, our own sort of exercise and well-being, um, our faith and spiritual communities, um, our friends and again our family, right? So making sure that uh, we stay connected uh, to those things. Um, I'm also thinking about how we can um, work with our departments to help ensure that um, we connect our work to the work, right? I'm making sure that they connect the work uh, to the work, right? So that uh, scholars of color don't become responsible for for implementing so many uh, so many of these strategies, but literally they become the the responsibility of departments. And so one of the things I've been trying to think about is how can because every department, I think, right, um, you know, particularly after uh, this sort of George Floyd moment, right, that is uh, sort of uh, carried over, has, has a statement, right, has a statement. I've been told that we should remind college and universities about those diversity and equity statements. They are not empty. They are living statements. This is what you all said in, in, in July, right? This is what you all said in August. Where are we at with that? Um, how can we make sure that our curriculum is attending to that? How can, you know, again, all faculty members become responsive to that? And again, it just doesn't become uh, the Dr. Kumars of the world, right? The Dr. Quays, the uh, myself of the world, but um, this becomes a collective effort that we all become um, accountable. <laughs> oh, accountable. You said it. I hear that word thrown around a lot. How can we create a campus where everyone is accountable of equity and inclusion? Dr. Stephen Gway, please. So I, I appreciate the uh, comments from um, Dr. Otello. Um, so thank you for sharing those pieces. And I echo especially what um, Wilson said around acknowledging the moment that we're in. Um, I think it's it's really important to not lose sight of that because I think it adds to the to the heaviness and the burnout that this question gets at. Um, 
So there's a few things that I, I wanted to say in response to strategies around this question. Um, so one, I think it's important to start with acknowledging some of my own identity. So um, I identify as a black immigrant. So I, that's a minoritized identity that I hold. Um, but that merges with, with some of my other dominant identities as a cisgender man, as a heterosexual person. And so for me, the reason that I, I start from that place is because I think it's important to think about how burnout impacts us differently based on how we're positioned in the world. And so, for example, um, women of color in particular feel the effects of this burnout differently than I do, in part because they're navigating multiple systems of oppression, right? Like not only racism, but also sexism. And so, um, so this was developed from gender studies, which basically talks about how um, women um, are having to manage their emotions in the workplace, in part because of the ways in which men are, are fragile and that we, we're, we don't often allow space for women to, um, to share the, the full range of their emotions, um, because often they're, they're told they're too emotional, they're being too sensitive, they're not being professional. So they do all of these things to manage how they show up in professional settings in, in the workplace. And so the reason I mentioned emotional labor is because that's a term that accounts for sort of the extra ways that women of color might feel burned out from engaging in this kind of work. And so for me, I think to acknowledge the, the points that Wilson raised, it's important for us to, to think about the two of us as like cis black men how we're positioned differently in relationship to this burnout point. So one, so that's my, my first strategy is, um, is, you know, it's not as concrete, but my first strategy is for those of us who hold uh, more power, who are positioned differently in this system, is to take the onus for engaging some of these issues so that the folks with more minoritized identities can rest, heal, and recuperate. So, so that's sort of my, my, my first thing. Absolutely, Dr. Gray. Listen, podcast audience, underrepresented faculty are often at a disadvantage by multiple sources of oppression. The race, class, gender identity, sexual orientation, religion, and other identity markers. Intersectionality recognizes that identities do not exist without others. They inform each other and often creating this complex convergence of oppression. Please, please, more strategies. Um, the second is, um, I think, I think a lot about, um, and this has come through a number of years, right? Like one of my mantras right now is I am very careful about protecting my energy. Um, and so like, as an aside, like uh, I see a lot of people spend a lot of time, uh, like getting worked up about what, um, is coming out of the white house. Right. And so for me, like, I don't need to take on that extra, that extra negative energy because, the White House is not within my sphere of influence. And so I'm kind of merging points two and three here um, about protecting my energy and then paying attention to your sphere of influence. And so on a weekly basis, I have 25 students in my student development theory class. I have 20 students in my diversity and higher education class. So I have 45 students on a weekly basis who I spend three hours with in a focused place. Those students are my sphere of influence. Like that's the work that I need to do and I try to get, I'm, I try to not be caught up in things that are out of my control. And this is not to minimize the harm, the vitriol that comes from the White House, but it's to acknowledge that if I spend my energy caring for the people around me in my circle of influence, it leaves me feeling um, more energized and less, um, 
depleted at the end of the day, because that's, those are the spaces where I have more control. Um, and I think I, where I have more responsibility. Um, so to me, that's an, another way to protect my energy and then to also pay attention to your circle or your, or your sphere of influence. I'm glad you uh, mentioned that because I think about that all the time and I always advise other underrepresented faculty about protecting the energy. One person told me that two people in this world can weaken your energy. You, yes you, and everyone else you interact with. And believe me, I know staying in control is not easy because we need strong boundaries, right? This is a work in progress, right? Like there are times when I'm an, I'm a really empathetic per person, I'm sensitive. And so I tend to take on a lot of people's feelings. And so if one of my friends or, or, or students is feeling pain, like that wears me down personally. And so I've had to figure out how to develop boundaries that doesn't allow other people's quote unquote stuff to, 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 um, for me to take on all of that. Um, and how to sort of like, do put my energy into things that give me joy, give me life um, so that I'm not sort of like in this space where I'm constantly feeling depleted. And so I think developing healthy boundaries is also really significant. Um, and again, there are some weeks where my boundaries are out of whack. Those are the weeks where I feel really like tired by, by the time Friday comes around. Right. And there are other weeks where I have various, I have stronger boundaries. And so all of this is, is to say, that we're all works in progress and there's no perfect way to do this. But I think being mindful of, of how we develop healthier boundaries, I think helps us also um, rest and recuperate so we don't experience the burnout um, as much as we might otherwise. You know, when I close my eyes, I not only feel my mind and my body, but I also feel myself trying to imagine a brand new higher education. And that is stressful, I'm telling you. So preserve your energy, protect your energy, ask yourself, what is your sphere of influence? What are my boundaries? Self-care is more important than ever. Use a mantra. I am the best faculty in the world. Even create a visual board if you want to be creative. Me, I have a workplace sanctuary. It's the boardroom. So thank you. And now we're off to our second question with Dr. Bailey at the cafe. Hello, I am Dr. Lee. Forgive me if I take too much of your time, but I have been searching for strategies to practice self-care in the midst of racial battle fatigue. I see symptoms of it. You know, high blood pressure, headaches, increased breathing, and heart rate in anticipation of racial conflict and exhaustion. Are there any recommendations or policies that my college can implement college-wide to address this racial battle fatigue? When I first discovered the term RBF, racial battle fatigue, I felt I had all the symptoms, headaches, trembling, jumpiness, high blood pressure, anxieties, increased swearing, <laughs> social withdrawal. And I think for many, George Floyd's murder was the tipping point, the accumulation of pain and trauma. And I use those words carefully. And it reminds me of a book that I'm reading by Mary Frances Winters, uh, Black Fatigue. And she talks about how this racism, literally RBF, really literally makes you sick. And But it not only erodes our body, but our minds, our 
spirits. So what can we do personally and what can universities and colleges do about RBF? Dr. Stephen Guay, please. So um, I just want to give a shout out right now to um, a book that I'm reading called My Grandmother's Hands um, currently. And so um, the, you know, the author of this book is a, is a black therapist. And so um, he makes the argument that um, because racism is a, is a visceral experience that's felt on the body, which is also, you know, what Ta-Nehisi Coates would argue in his book, Between the World and Me. So because racism is a, like, this visceral emotion that's felt on the body, that the, the, the way in which to, to treat um, racial battle fatigue is we have to begin with the body. Um, and so that means paying attention to um, the ways in which our body constricts or, or feels um, pain or the, the knot that we get in the stomach. Like for me, like it's, a, it's a big knot that I get in my stomach when I'm feeling the effects of racial battle fatigue. Like I, I can name it almost immediately. And so we have to pay attention to those pieces um, and not try to sort of like um, do away with them. And so um, what I appreciate is I think a lot of um, Wilson's work sort of pushes back against this notion of like um, the, the, the sort of temporary fixes around self-care that we devote to more deeper issues of racial battle fatigue. And so we might do things like we might go exercise, we might um, go get a massage, we might get a pedicure, a manicure, um, we might cook, we might bake, like all of these things I think are, are significant. So I don't want folks to misunderstand and say you should, you should not do those things um, because those are the practices I use as well. Like these, that's what I do when I'm feeling fatigued is I, I do things that give me joy. I exercise to, to release some of, of the tension. Um, the challenge with those pieces though is that after they're done, you might end up feeling good for a little bit, but it doesn't r really get at sort of the, the core of what's happening. And so I think this is why Menachem in his book, um, Between um, my, grandma, my Grandmother's Hands, gets at this notion that the more sustainable route is to like focus on your body. And so and that is hard for us too, right? Especially men of color, right? Especially those not accustomed to sitting with those emotions and just normalize those emotions as real. Why is that? Um, and this is not to say sort of black men are monolithic, like we all are different, right? We have different ways to cope, but I think we're socialized to sort of like be tough and be manly and like not sort of allow our emotions to get in the way. So paying attention to the body is a very vulnerable sort of like um, emotional um, experience and it requires like um, being meditative, it requires like pausing, it requires like noticing what's happening to your body. And so to me, I start there with the body because that's where the effects of racial battle fatigue are most felt. Um, like in some work that Wilson and I have done around racial battle fatigue, like a lot of the things that participants said was when they described their experience of racial battle fatigue, it was, it was bodies, it was things of the body. Like I feel tired or I feel anxious or um, I feel weak. Um, I feel like I have this weighted vest on me. Like these are, these are all things that are describing what's happening to the body. And so to me, I think we have to be comfortable paying attention to our body. I love how you echo how we should know our body. I feel that's very essential. But what does that actually mean? Noticing what's happening within our body, um, reflecting on it, um, not sort of trying immediately to fix the emotion that we're feeling. I think that's also a big thing 
is to just allow the, the feeling to be present, to notice it, but to not immediately wish it away. Um, and that, I mean, it takes practice, it's hard, but to me, that's the place to start, um, is to notice what's happening within our bodies as like a way to sort of address it. Retweet, retweet um, that racism gets in the body. <laughs> racism gets in the body. Um, you know, if we think even more broadly about the body, um, I think it also gets in our spirit, right? I think it gets in our psyche, right? Um, it, it plays on our emotions, right? That we show up differently, how I interact with my partner or these things, they play out, they manifest in uh, some really um, sometimes unrecognizable ways, right? And, and until we have the, the opportunity to do, as uh, Stephen mentioned, uh, to really take a step back, uh, to begin to uh, almost kind of clock uh, what it is we're feeling in the moment. <laughs> what shifted, right? And sometimes the people around us can help do this, which is why I think um, it's so necessary to be in community when we grapple with uh, about fatigue because um, I can't always clock the responses uh, that, I'm, that I'm giving, right? Or sometimes I don't recognize when my energy is showing up differently um, because, um, again, to, to Stephen's point, I think we've uh, broadly, I think people of color, uh, Black folk uh, in particular, have learned uh, or had to uh, learn how to uh, to develop these sort of really strong shoulders. Um, in developing these strong shoulders and being able to bear so much, oftentimes we uh, we haven't sort of we have weak legs, right? You know, which means that we don't we can't sort of move through uh, some things. We just sort of carry it. We we bear it, and we we um, and we especially apply black women for being so strong, right? And bearing so much. Um, but when we go back and look at the ways in which they're then able to sort of move through the world and the ways in which they sometimes are unable to do that because of everything that they're carrying, we don't attribute it to the thing, like the ways in which we're, we're lauding them for, um, again, for being so strong, right? And so, so we get wrapped up in uh, some of these uh, prob problematic tropes. Um, but again, to just tie it back to, to what Stephen mentioned, I think there's um, so much benefit in attending to our bodies and thinking about um, our own responses, carving out time to do that in community, uh, I think is, is so important. I'm in conversations with many faculty and we're often discussing if there are any wellness, uh, wellness policies to decrease RBF or if there are any strategies to correct the mixed messages about equity and inclusion in higher education. There's a way for us to, I think, center the realities of people of color on campuses, right? Uh, and then I think uh, it only becomes mixed when we choose not to to do that, right? If, if to be so frank, right? So I think uh, we uh, we correct the messaging by being specific about what it is that it means to center, right, and to consider uh, people of color. So, for example, if we could continuously ask the question of what it means, what does it mean? Uh, to not just sort of decenter something like whiteness and whiteness as these sort of larger organizing ideas and principles that have guided much of higher education, the ways that we operate and function. What, what would it mean to center blackness in our work? Pause, stop, full stop, and just meditate on that question in every faculty meeting, um, in every advising session, right? And when we thought about our program development, right? When we thought about um, alumni engagement, when we thought about um, the programming we want to invite to campus, what does it mean to center Blackness? I think the, the, the messaging then begins to align um, 
uh, with the priority, right? Which is blackness. And so um, I think in this moment, I think we have a, a decision to make. Um, there are Ahmed talks a lot about this note, uh, this notion of what it means, like diversity as sort of this performative gesture on college campuses. And I think we have an opportunity, if we do it correctly, to pivot uh, from those performative elements. Because as of right now, I think many students are recognizing not just sort of, it's not just an intellectual idea anymore, but I think students uh, can also recognize, they can see, right, the, the performative ways in which presidents are pandering to them or, you know, um, you know, fact, whatever that is, they, they, I think they, there's a different understanding of what that looks and feels like. And so um, our responsibility, I think, as a, as a, as a faculty administrative community um, is to figure out what it means to, uh, to continue to, to go back to the, the things we felt so deeply uh, coming out of the summer, uh, which is to say, right, this statement, for example, and I keep coming back to that because I think uh, so many universities and departments have embraced like, that as a, a particular pathway, right, um, or as a starting place. But if that is our starting place, how do we continue to go back to it? How do we refine it in a way that says uh, Breonna Taylor um, um, was not just for that moment, but she uh, what's happening to her and her family even now is something we continue to care about, right? Uh, what's happening in Louisville, right, uh, uh, continues to matter to us, right? Um, how do we continue to have that momentum? And I think we do that by saying, um, by continuing to ask specific sorts of questions. It's not to imagine, uh, to, uh, to Stephen's point earlier, uh, what is it, how do we, how do we imagine in this moment, right? Um, how do we create the things perhaps that we will need moving forward? So for example, like what would it mean uh, to say, um, to allow for different for alternative ways for faculty of color to engage in uh, uh, in right? Um, why can't we sort of say that um, like this becomes, you know, something that our white colleagues are just going to, they're going to take care of the like this set of programming right for the entire year because um, you know I'm just trying to sort of think about like what would it what would it look like uh, to do some of this creating. Uh, in the mo moment. So uh, no, that I don't know that they, they exist. And I wouldn't depend on the university necessarily to say that uh, we're going to create policy for you. Um, but I do think uh, there, there might be a pathway in and through what university of, universities have already stated in their statements, right? <laughs> so it's not sort of recreating the will. You all have committed to this. If you're committing resources, what might it be uh, or look like to names um, like this is what a policy could look like for our, for our health and our well-being. Yes, people are working on wellness policies to help decrease RBF like counseling session, be nice in unity campaigns. So please get involved. But it's also your job. And I will remind you, your job to protect your energy. So write down your circle of influence. Remind yourself daily of your goals and aspirations and realize this is a long, long race. So concentrate on your boundaries, make them strong and assess and assess and assess again its effects. Make sure you write them down. Now we're off to our third question with Dr. Bailey at the cafe. Hello, I am a writer and an English instructor. Well, soon to be, I mean. This is my first semester teaching. Being a woman of color, I noticed things. I attempted to discuss a few anti-racist issues and racial realities, but my white students challenged me. Are my students biased? 
how do I present my positionality to them? I am certain this probably is going to cause me bad evaluations at the end of the semester. Ugh. This seems as a uh, simple scenario, but it is coming. And to many, it's a game changer to actually think your students are biased. I was just talking to an underrepresented faculty the other day about the bias in myprofessor.com, which is sprinkled with examples of bias. So the rumors are true. Are students biased? Dr. Stephen Gway, please. I mean, the reality is, yes. <laughs> like the the reality is, I mean, we we all hold certain biases and assumptions and beliefs, and so yes, um, and I mean to your to this um, person's comments, like there are we know from research that um, when faculty of color, in particular women faculty, teach um, diversity related courses, um, their course evaluations are historically lower in those courses. So that's, I mean, we don't need to argue, argue about that point. Like that is, is something that we know. So then the, the question then is like, what can we do about it? Right. And so this is a case where I, I should preface this by saying that I often, maybe this is what Wilson was getting at. Like I often don't put a lot of my reliance in, in policies and procedures because policies and procedures are often used to protect institutions. They're used to protect whiteness. They're used to protect, um, you know, these larger systems of oppression. And they're, so uh, to me, there, I don't, so my caveat is to say, I don't often put a lot of stock in policies and procedures. Um, because we have policies and procedures though, this is a place where, where institution, institutional leaders can do something about this. So if we know from research that there's this disparity in teaching evaluations among women faculty of color, then we can actually put in some policies and procedures in the promotion and tenure system that um, addresses this, right? And so rather than having to make fac faculty of color sort of add this disclaimer in their dossiers about this is why my teaching evaluations might have been low, like we can just, we can just sort of add, like, okay, like we don't need that. Like we, we acknowledge that this is a problem and so we can, we can look at this in, in context, right? So that's one thing we can do. What it doesn't do, however, is it doesn't, recognizing that there's a problem and addressing it through policy that helps women of color move through promotion and tenure, doesn't get at the first part of this question, which is the harm that that, that person feels from how their white students are responding to them, right? Um, and so to me, what's, what's disheartening is often when we hold minoritized identities, when we when there's a problem, we have a tendency to look inward and say, is there something about me that I need to do in order to address this, as opposed to calling white supremacy for what it is and seeing that this is how whiteness works, right? Um, and so I don't necessarily want to put the, the onus onto this person for presenting their positionality to them. Like I, the reality is like they, they can, talk about who they are and how they show up and all those pieces, it doesn't necessarily mean that the issue is gonna go away. Um, but what I think maybe is possible mechanism is, again, calling on those who have more positional power to do some of that work. Um, and then also I think by maybe engaging the students into also recognizing their own positionality and how they show up because it helps us see that we're all positioned differently in our society 
So maybe that's one way to sort of like maybe lessen some of the resistance or defensiveness that might come up. It's certainly not going to take it away completely. Um, but that's maybe one approach that I would I would offer. Exactly. Some spaces still ignore studies that show how biased students' evaluations are. And in some areas, it actually affects decisions about our pay, promotions, assignments, tenure, and so on. In reality, student evaluation is the most common form of evaluating teachers' effectiveness among college and universities, despite criticism. So what does it look like putting the onus on leadership? Some colleges are, are developing equity and inclusion lens, their pair of glasses, to provide a new perspective, to bring clearer focus, a complete view. Because of the ways in which uh, we're racialized and gendered in and throughout history, people of color, uh, when they show up in white spaces, is always going to be a violent space, right? Um, and so violent broadly understood. And I think uh, the ways in which those things play out in student evaluations is one example of that, right? So the way, like, we need to understand the ways uh, in which I think pe when people of color uh, show up and they talk about um, what is probably understood as uh, sort of controversial um, or hard topics, um, that you are pushing up against uh, white normativity, right? And white normativity. And those are always contested spaces. Um, and to be a person of color doing that, right, puts you um, in in a, just a, a tenuous uh, position. And so, um, and so I, yeah, I just want to name that that is a a, a reality for for people of color, for women of color in particular. Mm, exactly. Um, yeah. And, and, that they're that they're experiencing, you know, and, and you know, uh, you're right. You, you have me thinking about spaces now, and you're right on point. And from both of you, I hear many tips like understand your identity, all of them, understand intersectionality, center around blackness, understand privilege and obstacles. And this is awesome. And I'm so interested in implementing bias training in the classroom and anti-racism in the classroom, right? But in, in the back of my mind, um, I'm asking myself, why is it he, she, or they only responsibility to be pushing these spaces of whiteness, right? Some of the challenge that comes along with uh, teaching sort of the diversity course is that it ends up just being the course, right? Or it ends up just being the one person uh, teaching it. Um, and so I'm wondering how we might understand what it would mean to approach English through an anti-racist lens, right? How might it uh, look to approach philosophy or, or STEM, right, in and through the anti-racist practices that we're writing up on our, uh, our website, right? You know, these, these things. So that, again, that one person doesn't just become responsible for it, but what you're actually, what students are actually critiquing is not the person then, it becomes the larger value that we're all sort of taking hold of. I um, mean, if you want to critique the larger department, have at it, right? But um, let it not be different, right? Um, or let your evaluations not be different um, because uh, this woman of color um, is presenting the ideas. And so I think if we're going to get behind our faculty of color, um, the entire department has to show up. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. It sounds like this English professor has a lot to be thinking about, but there are some things that he, she, or they can do in the classroom. 
Be explicit about your skill and check your own bias and add a bias literacy to your curriculum. You are more than qualified to take those students from point A to point B. And remember, you being in that classroom is the counter narrative. You belong in higher education. Wow, this conversation is awesome. Could you give our podcast audience one piece of advice? Yeah, so I mean, what I would say is to just reiterate some of the things we talked about earlier is one is to pay attention to your body. Um, So as much as you can practice getting acclimated with knowing what it feels like when you're feeling at your at your max, um, when you're feeling bothered, when you're feeling triggered. um, I think just being mindful of that, I think, is is really important. Um, I just want to reiterate one of the points that Dr. Okello raised around being in community. And I know that's often difficult for those of us who work in predominantly white spaces where we might be the only one, right? And so um, one of the things that I think this um, pandemic has has offered, as much as we are all Zoom fatigued at this point, likely, um, it's offered, I think, a different way to connect with people. So even if your community is not like at your institution, like there are ways, I think, um, virtually to, to be in community. And it doesn't replace, I think, the in-person and face-to-face. Um, and yet, I think there's, it's, 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 it's shown that um, often for pe- people who have minoritized identities, like virtual spaces are, can be really, I think, powerful and helpful. So, um, so that's another piece that, um, that I would say. Um, and then I think lastly, and, you know, I, I don't want this to sound trite or or cliche like this, you know, we often say, oh, take care of yourself. Like, you know, and we sort of say it as like a, a you know, like, a, like a, um, a trite, a trite way. And I think sometimes it can be this excuse to um, not pay attention to the system. Um, but to me, I, I say it with the sincerity of that we are not responsible for our trauma, especially our racial trauma as people of color. Um, but I do think we are responsible for finding ways to mend our trauma um, because like hurt people hurt people. Um, and so if we're not finding ways to take care of ourselves, um, I think it, we only do a disservice to, to ourselves and then those who are, we're in community with. And so um, that looks different for every person. But I think just um, you have the we have the agency and power. And I think we owe it to ourselves to also take care of our needs. Being uh, being gracious with ourselves when the language of even racial battle fatigue it sort of references this ongoing this ongoing uh, sort of fight right and you know I don't want to yeah I, I yeah so I think being great giving ourselves grace right as we as we negotiate whiteness uh, white supremacy from from day to day um, I think yeah so those those are those are a few things that absolutely I'm... absolutely thank you both for joining us thank you dr akalo dr gray thank you so much it has very much been a pleasure this is navigation report 57658 yes colleges and universities need to enlighten and educate themselves about racism rbf emotional exhaustion, privilege, and white supremacy. But while they are working, we need to take care of ourselves. Ask yourself these questions. Do you have a bad attitude? Is your brain feeling funny? Are you taking extra sick days? Protect yourself, protect your energy against emotional exhaustion by checking with your circle, nurturing those friendships, 
because you're going to need them in the long run. And lastly, and this is might be the most important one, but if someone asks you for a favor, ask yourself these questions. Do I really need to do this? Will this add work to my life? What exactly is my body saying? Awesome. This has been great. Well, on our next episode, we will have Dr. Anna Cohen Miller and Dr. Kim Case. We will talk more about navigational strategies. See you on our next episode on the Navigation List.